the combined Loyalist Military Command will universally cease all operational hostilities as from 12 midnight on Thursday the 13th of October 1994. And all sincerely, we offer to the loved ones of all innocent victims over the past 25 years abject and true remorse. The historic handshakes took place at Ireland House in central Manhattan this evening. I have spoken about shift of consciousness in the island of Ireland, and particularly in Northern Ireland, since the cessation of violence. And perhaps this is a small part of that shift of consciousness. Oh, I think it's a momentous occasion. I feel privileged to meet the, the President of Ireland. That historic handshake with President Robinson marked the end of a long road for paramilitary leader-turned-peacemaker Gusty Spence. Born and reared on the Shankill, he was an exceptionally promising student at school, but the family's economic circumstances meant he was destined for the mills. Whoever christened those mills the dark satanic mills, by heavens, he had a, he had a, a way with words. They were dark, they were noisy, extremely noisy at first, just coming in off after attended school and you, you were told to take your shoes off, whatever boots you had you, and you worked in your bare feet. They were wet and they were noisy, they were greasy, they were filthy and the conditions were absolutely abominable. Uh, you started at 8 o'clock in the morning, you got a half an hour for your lunch and you finished at 6 o'clock. On Saturday you worked at 12 o'clock. And uh, it was, it was, I detested them. The people that I knew that worked in the mills hated the mills. They hated the mills. Uh, they were dangerous places. You didn't have the safety regulations that you have now. You had these large leather uh, belts spinning all over the place and, and people quite, from time to time, had lost fingers and one thing and another. Of course, the bosses got over that. What they did do, if people lost fingers... They didn't offer them compensation. They offered them a job for life. I, I think I eventually left the mills, thankfully, about whatever I was 16 years of age, because I had I had a friend who had introduced me to uh, house repairing and stuff like that, and I worked in, in various building jobs. Uh, and then after I became 18, 19, I went into the Belfast shipyard, and I worked in the yards intermittently. Uh, until I was approximately 25, I think it was. And then there was quite a slump in the shipyards and I, I joined the army. And thankfully, I joined an Irish regiment in the army, in the British army. And it was perhaps maybe some of the, it, it led me to understand, you know, when we heard the, the officers uh, giving the slants, giving the toast to the Irish and one thing and another, you know. It was it, it was good. The Irishness the Irishness was heavy in the Royalist Rifles and indeed the Inniskillen Fusiliers and the Royal Irish Fusiliers. And there was quite a number who later became IRA men who had served in those three regiments. I remember Cyprus well. It was an internal security situation, as it was called. It wasn't a war, you know. It's always an emergency or an internal security situation. People have great euphemisms for these particular things. But I remember people had, someone had fired two shots at us and we put the patrol into the side and we had uh, radioed up and 
what normal thing was, it was a coordinate search. And these people were walking past me, ordinary public, and there was hate in their eyes for me. For me, you know, and I couldn't understand this. I may have been maybe part of an occupation force as they seen it. And here I was 3,000 miles away from Belfast and I asked myself the question, what the hell am I doing here, you know? And it, it may have been a spark, it may have been, there were other sparks later on which were more meaningful, but it, it, it may have been a spark that, that, that led me to question, especially when I seen these people with hate on their faces, you know, and, and I, I was wondering why they were hating me. Well, you eventually left the army, come back. Did you find it easy to get work at that stage? Well, I tell this story often. I think it's a story that needs to be told often. Whenever I come off the army, you know, after having helped the fate of war, you know, and and serve Her Majesty the Queen, uh, I had no house, and I had no job, and I had no vote. But yet there were people who looked upon me and people like me as being the Protestant ascendancy. If you were not a householder, you couldn't vote in local elections. Which meant to say, you know, that I, had, I knew a man who had wallpaper shops, he had 27 wallpaper shops, so he had 27 votes and I had none. Before long, Gusty Spence was recruited into the Ulster Volunteer Force. It was a time of growing tension in the North. The 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising was rekindling Republican fervour. The anniversary of the Somme was heightening Unionist feelings and elections always brought out underlying tensions in Ulster. You also had the situation, we had a, a general election in 1964. And Billy McMillan, whom I got to know very, very well, and he and I became very firm friends in Cronin Uh He was standing for Sinn Féin. It was, the, the, the premises was a derelict shop. It was a derelict shop in, in Divot Street. And they were using that as their headquarters. And of course they put a trickler in the window. What else would you expect Sinn Féin to do except put a trickler in the window? And Paisley, he threatened that if the trickler wasn't removed, he would march up with 20,000 dedicated loyalists and remove that trickler. Uh, at that point in time, the RUC were still the good right arm of the Unionist Party. And I suppose maybe even from a, from a, a law and order point of view, there could have been trouble over it, you know, but I personally would have called Paisley's bluff. However, the police went in, uh, broke open the door and the windows and removed the trigger. And the obvious thing happened the next day. There was rats that night. And Belfast had not seen rats. Since the 30s, since the 30s, Belfast had not seen rats. And there was rats that night. And the next day there were thousands of tricklers flying up and down the Falls Road. And there was, there was three or four days of rats ensued. That added to the tension, obviously. And those people who were uncommitted uh, became committed to some degree. And civil rights, all those things were beginning to accumulate. And uh, I would say that certainly the Melbourne Street incident didn't add petrol to the fire, it added fuel to the fire. Little did we know, and it's no excuse, no excuse, and I'm not making an excuse that we were bonds, you know. It's terrible to think, it's, it's, it's degrading to think later on to see how you were used. And uh, it, it added quite a bit of tension. 
On June 25, 1966, three Catholic barmen were attacked in a public house in Malvern Street, just off the Shankill, resulting in the death of Peter Ward. Spence and two associates, Hugh McLean and Robert Williamson, were tried, convicted and sentenced to 20 years each. Gusty Spence always maintained he was innocent of the murder of Peter Ward. I remember everything. I remember the house being searched. I remember my daddy being arrested. I remember well, we're told to tell the wee one. <coughs> we're told to tell the wee ones. Well, he always thought they thought he was in a military hospital. But I remember everything because my mummy did. She took uh, sick after it, and my daddy was actually sentenced on my birthday, my twelfth birthday. He was. Mm. To begin with, uh, the first few days we sort of took it in our stride until I actually then knew what my father had been charged with. Now and. It was hard first for us when he had been sentenced not at school because people taunted you at school. My mother had to actually go up to the school and all a few times. You know, people taunted you about your daddy being a jailbird. You know, a lot part of it was hard, but eventually, like, well, we had to. We had to be strong because we had my mummy there, so you had to just keep up, get up and go on. You had no other choice then. We hadn't, because then we knew that he'd, he'd been sentenced in so 20 years. It was, he was lifted in June the 27th and he was charged on his birthday the 28th and he was sentenced on the 14th of October. The children was very good. They worked, and the children always worked. Well, well grew up very quick. Especially the two oldest ones grew up very quick. And they worked. She worked in the mornings. She was out in the mornings at 6 o'clock before she went to school, unless she was still at school and worked in a shop around the corner till she had to leave for school at half eight. And she came out of school at three o'clock or half three and she went back round to that shop and worked till it closed at seven o'clock. The other daughter, Sandra, she worked in a chip shop, fish and chip shop. She came out of school and she went at four o'clock. And through the week, it was 12 o'clock, she worked right up to 12 o'clock. And at the weekends, it was one o'clock and two o'clock before she, I was going up to pick her up. Sandra got a pound a week and I got 15 shillings. 15 shillings. But then we come in and we give it to my mother because mm-hmm. she needed it. She peeled potatoes in a chip shop for two shillings an hour, ten pence it is now, an hour. And she got an extra pound if she scrubbed the walls on a Sunday. So me and my other sister, we went and done it for her so she could get the extra. Well, I got eight pounds. I don't know the odds. Eight pound, say fifty, ten shillings, eight pound ten down, for to keep five of us on the national state. And I had to go down to the Frederick Street. There's no such a thing as a book then. From June to October, I had to go to Frederick Street at nine o'clock on a Monday morning. And I sat right through to three o'clock before they give me a hypnotic over the desk. And sometimes I had two of the children with me, and sometimes I had four of them with me. Now, the visiting was difficult, the, 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 especially for us as children. It was like a, a very, very small room, and there was a table in the middle, and my daddy sat at one side, the prison officer sat at the end, and we sat at the other end. Now, you could only speak about things that the prison officer pr- approved of, but then we weren't allowed to kiss him or nothing. 
there's no such thing as bending over to give him a kiss. You weren't allowed to do that. And the prison officer sat and listened to the whole conversation. And if, if it was something that he didn't agree with you talking about, he stopped you. And it was just as bad in Long Cash because when you went down there at 9 o'clock in the morning... You didn't get back to sometimes to 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock at night. Well, it's just true. You were sitting away maybe to 2 o'clock before you got your visit. And then that was for half an hour special. No, our first visits in Long Cash, there was no, uh, there was no waiting rooms the way there is now. You know, you had a wee caravan in the middle of the car park where you handed your pass in and you stood out in the rain yeah. until a bus came for you to take you around to your visit. Crumlin Road was a dank, austere Victorian place, one of the grimmest prisons in Western Europe. From the outset, Gusty regarded himself as a political prisoner, refusing to work, suffering solitary confinement, until a deal was done whereby he sat in the tailor's shop without formally working. In a sense... This was the beginning of a form of politics. Whenever I found myself in jail in '66, I knew nothing, knew nothing of the of the historical circumstances which led me to be there. I knew that William had crossed the Boyne in, in 1680, and I knew there was a rebellion or a raising in Dublin in '16 and the Somme, but I knew nothing about Irish politics. So, to, for me, it became a personal quest. I had to determine. What were the political circumstances then and now which led me to be in serving a life imprisonment in Crumlin Jail? Now, was that initially a, a, a very much your, your own quest? Well, yes, yes, absolutely, my own quest. And I remember the first time I went to the governor, and the governor says, oh, well, now it was, it was, it was, it was politics and, and historical circumstances which, which have you here now, and I don't want to exacerbate the situation by, by allowing you to read Irish history, history books, you know. Of course, I persisted. However, I remember the very first book that I got in, whenever, whenever the, 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 the Minister of Home Affairs was still with the instalment, they had acquiesced, and the first book I got in was Don Brings My Fight for Irish Freedom. <laughs> now, Don was a bigger liar than Terror the Beef, you know, but that was beside the point, you know, I didn't know any difference. So Don Breen was my starting point, and I read prolifically after that. As a matter of fact, in the 70s, what I started to do in, in, in Crumlin Road Prison was, was to teach some of the other prisoners, UVF personnel, and at that particular time, some there was no UDA, but other loyalists come in for other offences. And I was commanding officer of all the loyalists in, in those days. That wasn't a boast, believe you me, it was a penance. But uh, I, I had started to teach them very history. In a sense, that, that must have been uh, quite a shock. I mean, having gone through something similar myself seeing another point of view in the situation in which you had been involved to defend the Union, and then seeing a, the, a very opposite point of view. How did that affect you? Yeah, I was frightened, of course. I was very frightened at first. Because of another point of view that, 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 and that there were things that I was beginning to acknowledge that were wrong in political terms, that were wrong. My, my, my view of the Union will, it will always remain the same. It's absolutely unshakable. But within that, there were wrongs. It was interesting with, with, the, with the, the Republicans. The first thing that we did, and I name personalities here because it's a matter of historical record, Billy McKee was one of the founder members of the Provisional IRA. He was the man, the cardinal they called him, because Billy was, Billy was a very devout Catholic. On the other side, you had PJ Mulligan, who was an official, an official IRA command officer, you know. And PJ was a laconic, the slightest upturn of the right part of his lip was 
Peter burst into laughter, you know. He was a laid-back person. So the three of us met and agreed, first and foremost, there would be no conflict amongst the prisoners. If there was, if one of our respective, respective bodies stepped out of lane, it was his parent body who would deal with him. No physical punishments. We achieved political status, I must say, in the 20th of June, 1972. The Republicans were, 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 had attempted and had succeeded to some degree in organising political clout, mostly through the SDLP, to whom I am eternally grateful. One man in particular would be Paddy Devlin. Paddy Devlin knew, being an old IRA man himself, being interned, he knew what the situation was. There were others who helped. There was Austin Curry, there was Jerry Fitt, and there was John Hume. But I would say that, with respect to those men, Paddy Devlin had the feel of the situation. I had been elected along with another six later to become the SDLP, and we were invited up to the jail by the governor to, you know, to go around and see what the situation was like. So when we got up, he gave us a room and says, I'll send the prisoners in to you and you can interview them. Now, they were all uh, all green prisoners, as it were, that were coming into town. But quite suddenly there was a sharp knock at the door and a man appeared at the door and he was brought in and he says, I'm Custy Spence. Are you going to do anything for us? So I said, I'm Paddy Devlin. She says, oh, I know who you are. I remember you all right. I remember you playing football. So I says, that's right, I played with your brother Billy for Old Lodge. Uh, he said, what are you going to do for us? I says, we'll do the same for you as we're doing for everybody else. Everybody's equal, we'll get equal treatment. He says, OK. So he says, I'll then arrange interviews in here. She says, are you going to the maze? I says, we hope to go there too. Well, you know that we have prisoners up there. I want you to give them a fair deal as well. I says, they'll be interviewed and we'll do the same for them as we're doing for everybody. He says, well, that's fair enough. Shook hands. That was that. So when we went to the maze, even, he had the, the leaders all lined up to uh, do the interviews on the conditions that they were uh, living in. In long case, it was a different ball game entirely. Here you had a compound, which probably would have been... Uh, anything that, that maybe 40 yards by 40 yards but at least you were able to exercise you were able to get it in the air and it was the country as such you know and you heard the twittering of the birds and you, you watched the seasons change you know you, you were beginning to it was the first contact with life that you had or you had had for, for a considerable period of time and it was also uh, the beginning of the end because I was able to, we were able to organise ourselves in such a way that we laid out our day for ourselves. We were heavily in the education. The commanding officer or the OC of the, of the compound, he made representations to the governor on, on everyone's behalf, whatever. It was, done in collect, it was done in collective terms. Later on, we expanded that to incorporate ACAM Council, which existed, which consisted of the... Uh, of both wings of the IRA and the UDA and myself and we cooperated to bring forth a more humane regime. We wanted a library introduced for instance, we wanted education, a comprehensive education system, all those things which were positive and we succeeded.
and what we were proposing was positive. Security was a risk all the time, you know. There were there were there were escapes and rumours of escapes. Cash Fanalong Cash was like a like a rabbit warren. There was tunnels all over the place. There were some humorous stories. I remember a fella coming to me one night, two o'clock in the morning, and saying, "Sir, there was a tunnel being dug in a UVF camp." He says, "Sir, would you would you would you come to the tunnel? There's strange noises in the tunnel." So you had rats and you had it was a big bog. You see, it's name, you know, a large bog. But and and there was maybe a f- couple of feet of concrete, and then there was tarmac over the top of that, being an airfield. And there was water seeping in, you know, and that was your big trouble with 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 the tunnels was water, and of course, tunnels are very frightening places, you know. So I got down in the tunnel, and surely enough, there was strange noises. And we we after a while we listened very carefully, and there were voices. And it was the provost were digging in the art tunnel. <laughs> Thursday night was always top of the pops, you know. Well, the young fellas they went top of the pops all night. I haven't any, I haven't any particular affection for top of the pops, you know. And it was a dark, dirty, rainy night, as you can only get in that part of the Lagan Valley. And I put on the heavy gear and hurt. I was walking in the rain, was beating in my face, and it was a provo compound. Maybe something like 50, 60 yards away from the compound I was housed in. And I could see the dark figure walking around the compound, you know. Obviously, he, he, he may have been the same age group myself. He certainly had, he certainly had the the the, uh, he, the same dislike for Top of the Pops that I had. Because nobody would walk out in the night like that. And we had passed each other a couple of times and the voice shouted over, Is that you, Gusty? I, I says, Yes, it is, Paddy, you know. And uh, he said to me, what the fuck are you doing here? And perhaps it was a profound moment, and I says, Paddy, I just couldn't tell you. I just could not tell you. And that had an effect on me. I know it had an effect on him. Whenever I went back and I thought about it, and I said, what am I doing here? My wife, my children, and everything else. And here I'm stuck in a hole like this, you know. And even after I had that question, even after everything had fallen into place, that Republican had posed a question to me that I couldn't answer. And it was it was it was good in a way, you know, and it was good. We were suggesting things which were pretty revolutionary in their time. That there there should be some form of, of, of shared government, of shared responsibility. We also suggested about integrated education. We also suggested that the, the matter hospital should be incorporated in the National Health Scheme. You should be permitted to, to, to continue with the Catholic ethos. But if they put a bandage on a person, no matter who the person was, they should be recompensed for that, you know. So it was pretty revolutionary in its time, you know, it seems mundane now. That was in 1974. It was. A very significant year in some ways in Northern Ireland. That was the year of the Sunningdale Agreement was put into operation. We had the power sharing executive. Yeah. It was also the year when the UVF issued a, what I consider to be a, a very important statement of conciliation, reaching out the hand of friendship to our Catholic neighbours. Well, that's right. It was, it, was a, it was a catalyst for me personally because I had been speaking at the gate staff of the UVF and I had been hopefully pointing out the way forward was not through violence. And I had been, whatever pressure I could bring to bear on them, to call a ceasefire. And the ceasefire was called in 74. 
I had become disenchanted with, with, with violence or the physical way forward from 73. I was beginning to put in the arborist in 74. And when the, when the UVF called a ceasefire, a good and latent leadership of the UVF called a ceasefire, the hard men took over. Those unlaid men were overthrown and the hard men took over. And from that point on, uh, I was completely disenchanted with physical force. I had a crop of young, pertinent lads in long cash. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a question of indoctrination. It was a question of inculcation. Gusty was always questioning and always forcing us to question and always drawing up papers and sending them out, so to speak, to brigade staff of the UVF. And in doing that, I think he was not only engendering thought within brigade staff, but he, had, he was beginning, perhaps even without realising it, he was beginning to take people in, down the path of political science. I have an affection for the man, which is quite massive uh, and it comes not over one meeting or, or two or three meetings it comes over beginning to understand the complex mind that obviously goes on behind that, that very pretty facade and, uh, he, he, and, and the complexity is not simply of being faced with the difficulty of his incarceration but the difficulty then of having the authority over many others in that incarceration and then having the difficulty about how we deal with the problem that stops people coming into this jail and stops kids as young as 15 arriving at, at, at the gates of Long Cash. So there was this complexity within him that was uh, something that I hadn't learned because I, I think that at that point, at 21 years of age, I think I was probably uh, one-dimensional. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and only through yeah. a period of reflection and education and, 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 and desire to learn, and certainly desire to learn from, from somebody like Gusty Spence, did I then become more than a one-dimensional person and able to look at, at, at abstract ideas and things that, that for me up to then were, were illusions that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. I'd like to tell you a story first of all. <clears throat> I was talking to Gusty and there a lot of obviously the difficulties outside were horrendous and Gusty put forward the theory to a couple of us just that it was, we're sitting in the sun actually and um, um, outside the study hut of Long Cash and he was he came over as he would and then he would throw a hand grenade into the middle of us which was something that he would say which would provoke debate and the one he chose for today was power sharing and I remember going off the wall I mean I remember, <laughs> I, remember I genuinely remember saying what? you must be joking and all the rest he says hold on a minute son he says what power sharing is he says is the politics of the goldfish bowl and of course it Here's a, a concept being thrown up to you, and I'm automatically starting to try and hone in on this politics of the goldfish bowl. There for everybody to see. And if you're disingenuous, then it would be obvious that you're disingenuous. Mm-hmm. But why not give it a try? Why not call people's bluff who say they're alienated? And of course, we're alienated. There, there is no question about that now, and that I accept very much uh, the, the confrontation that he placed before us uh, about the ills of the past. And about the the, the ruling cadre of, of at that time was uh, captains and majors, of course only to be replaced at a later date by a cadre who turned out to be the reverence, you know, uh, 
that they, they took the pips off their shoulders and gave them dog collars. But all of this was about confrontation. Without we didn't realise it was confrontation or provocation, but it was a learning process. You know, uh, it was an exceptional time for me, an exceptional period of learning. But I wasn't the only one. There was there was a whole series of people who are now active within the PUP. So it can be no accident that that we had. Uh, Billy Hutchinson, David Irwin, Billy Mitchell, Eddie Kinner, uh, Plum Smith, uh, Gusty Spence, uh, and others uh, who were all incarcerated near enough in the same cage over over a number of years together. But the debate was superb. Gusty unlocked the door, and he did it for many. And whether you walked through it or not was entirely up to you. And I think there is a wind of change within our society. And, and no one can ask for any more in a, in a democracy than the freedom of choice. Unionism is being offered that freedom of choice. And, uh, of course, unionism will not be anything. And will never have a proper definition. And will never have a proper uh, appreciated identity within itself. Never mind beyond its borders, within itself, until there is a constructive debate on what is unionism. We are determined that that debate should take place. But if we never achieve anything in electoral terms or benefit or merit for the party as such, uh, I would say that we will all be proud to have forced, forced the debate within unionism that will create a unionism that is not anti-Irish, not anti-Catholic, and a unionism that says I'm an Irish uh, citizen of the United Kingdom. It was important to know what you were fighting for because so far all we have heard is what you're fighting against. And we had to come up with a political philosophy. Not to justify violence, but to justify why they were fighting the war, them. And after these endless seminars, you know, we came forward with a reasonable political philosophy. That unionism, that the unionist party had not served the people well. And there would have to be a redefinition of that unionism. Were you able to bounce those new ideas of Republicans, nationalists in prison and to sort of, in a sense, gauge how far it was acceptable to that part of the community? Oh yes, there's no question about it. I'd questioned the Republicans quite closely. And up until 73, <laughs> they didn't have much of a political philosophy. They were still taking their mandate from Doyle Hill of 1918. You know, the first document they came up with was Aaron Ewell as such. The provosts themselves were attempting, those thinking provosts were attempting to find a political way forward, or at least a political philosophy which would justify the violence. And uh, they did quite a bit of soul-searching. And I will give credit to those people who done the soul-searching, and we've seen it manifested through Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness and Mitchell McLaughlin like that. It's easy for to put those people down. But I believe that they turned the provost from, from, from violence to the ceasefire to some form of positivity. Unfortunately, that was blown sky high with the Canary Walk bomb. Gusty Spence had come to the ultimate conclusion that physical force was not the way forward. On Remembrance Day, November 11th, 1977, he made his farewell speech and publicly resigned from the UVF. However, he still remained in the compound and was to have visits from many politicians and peacemakers, among them the late Cardinal O'Fee. I remember him coming down the first time he came down 
and uh, no nervousness about the man. He was a wee stout country man, down to earth, and uh, very amenable, very jovial, and very affable. And he and I got on like a house on fire. He was smoking cigarettes and he was coughing badly. And I says, You're having the same things are going to kill you. You know, he says, That, but sure, I love a smoke busty. What am I going to do? Said, You ever try a pipe? Now, don't get a stip, get a band pipe. So the second time he came in to see me, he came in and the smoke, there was a whole trail of smoke behind him, it was like a smoke screen, you know. And he was very interested in the, the, the Irish library that I had, or the, the, at least was in our compound. But twice a year I allowed the boys to make the patchy. That was on the 12th of July and, and Christmas because alcohol and jail does not mix. And of course I got my ration of patchy the same as everybody else, but I used to stick my bag in it. And then I would have took it out in, in small quantities and let it dry out. And, you know, it was quite a nice smoke. But I said to him, you know, what's that you're smoking? And he, it was a male tobacco he was smoking. I says, can I fill your pipe for you? He says, I certainly. So he gave me the pipe and I filled it. And he took one or two puffs. He said, oh, God, he says, that's quite a drop of stuff. You know, he says, I was soaked in patchy. And he says, I thought it tasted familiar. So he said, I'll give you a couple of inches away with you. He says, oh, no, I won't take nothing from a prisoner. And fair play to him. He never came to any of the compounds. That he always had cigarettes stuffed up the cassock and, and dispersed to, to the old prisoners. Fair play to him. Wasn't many prime ministers done it. Against the rules, you see, against the rules. However, the I said, I'll give you a couple of inches away with you. So he, he was grateful he took a couple of inches away. And a couple of weeks afterwards, through these surreptitious lines of communication, a fella slipped up to me and he says... As Eminence says, if you had a wee dab of our stuff, you'd be very grateful. <laughs> true story, absolutely true, you know. And when I got out, eventually, I, I was down and seen him on several occasions. I had my good wife down, and uh, we we got good business done. He was a man that wanted peace. He was a Republican. He tell you, he was a Republican. He wanted peace in Ireland. He wanted to see. He wanted to see in all Ireland. And if it came about, it had only to come about. There's only one way through peaceful means. That's fair. He had his aspiration. I have mine. Another man that you had some contact with was um, Paddy Devlin. You seem to have stuck up a good friendship with Paddy. Yes. Paddy and I had a good basic understanding. Paddy's a socialist. Paddy, Paddy's a working-class person who had pioneered working-class rights for years and years and years. He had been through the same syndrome. He had been in the IRA. He had been young. He was interned. He questioned. And I would say that Paddy Devlin is one of the most respected men in Northern Ireland at this point in time. When I would go to the boxing or when it would be about, and his, any of his relations or friends were about, they came over to me, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Gusty sends his regards. Yes. Now that went on for quite some time. And finally a man came on one occasion to me indicating that he had been uh, he had been told by Gusty to come to see me and they were wanting to get someone to go into Mount Joy in Dublin where there was a, 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 a prisoner, a, a loyalist prisoner and he had been neglected. So I went down on two occasions and got him extra riding gear and a few other small things as a result of that. So that's about the contact that I had over those years. Until finally, um, Trevor West rang me up and asked me about uh, to know uh, anything about Gusty. I said no, I, I, I'm not contact with him. 
He says he's in there 19 years and it's a life sentence and that's only 16. So I contacted the Secretary of State and he arranged for a meeting and I rang Trevor and Trevor came up and the both of us went in and made the case to the Secretary of State that Gusty had been in for 19 years instead of 16. He says, I'll check it up and if that's the case, I'll let him out. So he got out on the morning, he came out, he came up to our house here and come in for a cup of tea and he thanked me and thanked Teresa for the kindness shown towards him. I always felt he was sort of a, an independent person, independent of the political parties that, that existed and even the sort of paramilitary organisations. He always had his own unique ideas of things and they had nothing to do with Green Orange politics but they had to do with socialism with you know the the setting of parties that would be on uh, aligned in such a way that they they would be dealing with political issues like they do in Liverpool. He was a non-sectarianist, which is a remarkable thing. I found him uh, distinctive ways in a way that I've never met a wise man in politics here, but he had a wisdom about him. I uh, had a great regard for him, and still do. <laughs> it was a tap on the shoulder that put me in prison. And I knew it was always going to be a tap on the shoulder that put me out of prison. And indeed it happened that way. I had been out for uh, a bit of exercise that morning, and one of the lads told me the governor had wanted to see me, and I went across. And the governor says, you have ten minutes to get out. I'm releasing you. Douglas Ford had signed the release form for five days. I don't know what the delay was. But uh, they gave me 10 minutes. I said, nah, no, I'll take a half an hour. You know, what's 20 minutes here and there after 18 and a half years? So I went around and said, cheerio to my friends. Coincidentally, my wife and two daughters had been up to see me on a visit that morning and they were still in the visiting area. He hadn't been very well uh, weeks previous to that. And we, there was my mother and me and my other sister, Catherine, went up to visit that day. And they let us put the parcel in, put the pass in. And it was only when we were through to get searched where we were told that we had to go into the PO's office. And I thought, sure, there was something wrong with them. And they locked us in. No, the, the, the officer PO called me first and his sister speak to you, Mrs Spence. And I looked at them too. And I thought, sure, something had happened. And I was going to put them two through the visit. And I said, no, they're with me. Do you remember that now? Yeah. And when he brought me in the office, he says to me, we're going to release your husband. And I, and I looked, he says, well, you promised me one thing. I says, what's that? He says, you'll not tell the press or nothing until he's released. I says, you can take my word on it. I says, nobody will know. You know, so which I, I Well, it was I had, we actually had to stay in the office yes, until he was for released. The names, and then anybody came in, they kept asking us why we weren't going through the visits, and we couldn't say. We just kept saying we were waiting on somebody, we were waiting on somebody. And then when, when we eventually got home, we had to ring the other sister and brother at work to get the Emmons out, to let the Emmons know that he had been released. In fact, it was your daddy wrong, and they both of them cried on the phone. Yeah. I'm saying this, that we want every gun, or even pea shooter, removed from this society of ours because they've been there for too long and they have wreaked too much havoc on these people and we have victimhood throughout the whole of this province of ours, you know. But we're saying this, let, let's be practical. 
let's get on with it. The guns are silent. Let's get on with the dialogue. What concerns me is this, that there are people within the Unionist Party and within the Unionist population that have to recognise that the old order of things has gone. The days of touching the forelock, the days of subservience are gone and they better get used to it, you know. The predominance has gone. The ascendancy has gone. Working class never had it, so it doesn't affect us. You know, it is gone. And it's left for those people to enter the real world as we have. I would not concede that of my Britishness. The same as I would not concede that of my Irishness. Because I'm British as well as being Irish. That's the peculiarity, you know. People people have to know that you don't have to be anti-Irish to be to be British. And you don't you don't have to be you don't have to be anti-British to be Irish, you know. This is the whole ethos at long last perhaps.